I was pretty much blinders on blues when I was a kid. Like I was the weird kid in high school. Sure. I was 16. I wanted to go listen to blues. I Hello and welcome back to the EarFuel podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel, and well, I mean, wherever you found the podcast today, clearly you know how to find it, so it's there too. At the top, you heard a clip from my chat with Matthew Stubbs. His new record came out a few weeks back. It is really good, and we're going to get into that interview right after a quick album review. The record I want to look at today is the brand new release from The Breeders, and it's called All Noise. This is their first record since 2008, and it's the first in 25 years with their classic Last Splash era lineup. I've been waiting for this record a long time. This album, All Noise, is instantly strong and confident, and it's got that swagger that is so unique to The Breeders' sound, and it's there right away. What I mean by that is, the second this record starts, you know exactly what band you're listening to. The first trio of songs have this dark, unsettling feeling to them that I love, and it's just, it's a really good way to say, hey, we're back, and we mean business. It's got that balance of open spaces, and the fuzz, and the buzz, and the tone that defines that band, it's just... It's so good, but here's the thing. It's not like they're trying to be a nostalgia act or go back to what they once were. This is that band, and it sounds very fresh and very modern. From beginning to end, they move as a single unit, and as much as it sucks to have to wait so long between albums, and it does with this band, with this sort of quality each time, I mean, it's pretty much worth the wait. Well, at least the first half of the album is, and we're going to get to that in a second. The guitar work here is perfect. They managed to cut it just the right angles. The vocals are as alluring as ever. And like I said, the Breeders just have that tone. It's a tone that I love and no other band can touch it. The song Nervous Mary is unsettling in a way I can't explain. And I like the fact that I can't explain it. The title track has this perfectly dejected vocal. It's got this dark swing and it's really captivating. Songs like Space Woman have this super wide-open feel, and there's just so much atmosphere, but for me, my favorite song was definitely the track Waiting with the Killer. The guitar bridge is insanely catchy, the mood is incredible, it's, to me, this song is like watching the sunset on the beach, but instead, the sunset just slowly explodes, and it's very peaceful, it's kind of fine with me. I, I don't know, that makes sense to me, that's what I feel every time I hear this song, and I like it a lot. But that is where the good stuff stops, after that song. The second half of this album just doesn't hold up, especially with such a strong first half. The latter half tracks are just, they kind of meander, and they're a bit lost and not in the good way. Some of them end up sounding like unfinished demos or, I don't know, just tracks that should have stayed away. Let me put it this way. This album would have been an amazing EP if they would have just put out the first six songs. But when you add in the other half of it, I don't know, it's just kind of filler. Though I will say, in the second half of the album, I really like the line, tough kids love sad songs, and the track Dawn making an effort, it would have been a good album closer, but it's not. So in the end, All Nerve is absolutely worth listening to for the first half. It's really damn good, you're gonna dig it, go check it out. 
Moving on, Matthew Stubbs has been in the blues and rock scene for a really long time. Now, now let me tell you what I mean by a really long time. Like, since he was in, like, junior high and high school. I mean, how many of you had to say to your friends, uh, hey, I can't hang out tonight in 10th grade because I have a gig I have to play, right? This is as I've been playing for as long as I can remember as it gets. His new album is a self-titled release with his new band. It's called Matthew Stubbs and the Antiguas, and it blends killer rock sounds with elements of psych and dub and Afrobeat and obviously blues and more, and it is a blast of a record from beginning to end. We chatted about everything from his writing process to the ups and downs of self-releasing your music to the question of why people don't seem to be as excited about live music anymore. I don't get it. It was a great conversation, so let's get to know more about Matthew Stubbs. Check one, too. Beauty. So when did you start playing? I started playing when I was 13, I guess, is when I got my first guitar. I don't know if I would say playing, but that's when I got my first guitar and started messing around with it. Sure, sure like just saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to learn how to play and I'm going to mess around. Yeah, my father is a, a musician and a guitarist, so there was guitars laying around and stuff. And then I was really into hockey when I was probably up till I got my guitar and then it was like a year of playing hockey was after that was done you know, right, I was right. all in music hockey's fun and all but man yeah yeah right guitar is way cooler yeah so um yeah 13 I guess is when I got my first Fender Stratocaster and did you grow up in a musical family then just my father yeah so my father was in you know uh blues and rock bands and would have rehearsals at the house and do nice. gigs you know once a week or every other week or something you have a gig around town so you just kind of got to watch the magic happening and yeah just i was just around it, it seemed normal yeah I mean? yeah yeah so then what, what sort of music were you kind of raised around so my father was into blues and er, like earlier rock and roll chuck berry uh-huh. bo diddley anyway into british stuff too like he liked clapped and stuff but he really liked blues like traditional blues albert king muddy waters bb king yeah like that was he had an uncle uh when he was a kid that got him in all the you know real traditional blues but he grew up in the late 60s early 70s so he also got into like british blues sure. and invasion stuff obviously the sure. beatles because there's uh there's a couple moments you know when i when i was listening to the record that it's like wow that that's a, that sounds really heavy almost stevie ray vaughn sounds mm-hmm. and, and just kind of that that classic yeah blues sound so it, it that that's kind of where the lineage comes from yeah uh i think any most guitar players that were in are into blues probably went through that phase at one time or another with Stevie Ray Vaughan. I sure, mean, I didn't do this huge Stevie Ray Vaughan thing per se. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think back, I had probably a year or two where I really liked it when I was first Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan. I kind of got out of that pretty quick. Not that yeah. I don't like when I hear it, I still like it, but I didn't spend a lot of time really, sh- sh- you know, shedding away on Stevie stuff. Yeah, I pretty quickly got into stuff that was before him you know earlier like I, I liked I gravitated more towards like an Albert King or Johnny Guitar Watson mm-hmm. or people even before that T-Bone Walker uh, within a year or two of getting into blues I was there and I was not listening to Steve Ray Vaughan anymore yeah. but uh, obviously he's great I like I, I, I love Steve Ray Vaughan I just it wasn't a huge portion of my learning years on Steve Ray, a lot. Of, it seems like a lot of guitar players spend a lot more time on that than me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of seems like you know everybody seems to start with Hendrix because I mean, it right. makes sense, or maybe Page. But everyone I think looks at Jimmy Page and like, I'll get to that. Right, right. Um, and then yeah, they sit on Stevie Ray for a while, which you know, 
it's, it's fine. So since there was so much blues, were you also, you know, I mean, was, was there rock going on in your youth or was it really just kind of a blues upbringing? I was, I went through a little bit of, you know, through high school, different phases. Uh, there was rock guys I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, some modern music at the time, like I really went through an Oasis phase, I guess. Sure. I liked Oasis. and uh, But I was pretty much blinders on blues when I was a kid. Like I was the weird kid in high school. Sure. I was 16. I wanted to go listen to blues. I, I wasn't, there were some bands I liked back then, but I was not, compared to other people that were playing music that I was hanging out with, I was nowhere, like I was not at the time into Smashing Pumpkins or into Beck. Now yeah. Beck's one of my favorite artists of all time. I listen to, that's probably not a week that goes by that I don't listen to a Beck right Nothing wrong with that. But uh, when I was in high school, that was not where my head was at. I wanted to listen to, like I said, like early Buddy Guy, Junior Wells. It's good you know, stuff. Just, yeah, just, just low down Chicago blues. Sure. You know, almost exclusively, you know. Yeah, that, I I get it, you know, kind of being in high school where everyone's listening to this. Yeah. You're like, this thing over here is cool. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I was in it. I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire. I don't know yeah. what. It was probably just from being around my old man. And he took me out to see a lot of live music. So I was, by age 14 or 15, I was really going out to blues clubs and seeing local artists. And yeah. when, when national acts would come through, like Buddy Guy or Robert Cray or B.B. King, and, I mean, I got to meet them. Wow. You know, get, so uh, it's cool. Is he, you got to meet B.B. and, and then? I met B.B. a couple times, yeah. That's really cool. And, and Buddy Guy, I met him yeah. when I was a kid. But now I've, I've been lucky enough because I play with Charlie Musselwhite. You know, I've been able to play with Buddy a few times. He'll sit in. If we play his venue and he's in town, he'll get yeah. up and sit in with us. So that's wild to me because that, I mean, you know, Hoodoo Man Blues by Junior Wells with Buddy Guy on it, to me, is like a, it's like biblical. Yeah, it's a be-all, end-all yeah, track. Yeah, it's my favorite record. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Just to be, I just got off uh, Sunday. I did one of these, they call them a blues cruise. So it's like a blues festival mm-hmm. for a week with like 30 bands and Buddy was on it. So I, you just, you're on this ship. And you're just walking around, get to see him like three or four times. It's pretty awesome. I saw him probably like five years ago at Iridium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a friend of mine just said, hey, you know, I heard there's going to be a really cool show tonight. You should come by. Yeah. And, man, it's just like Always, w- watching him blow people off the stage who are, you know, 40, 50 years younger than him. Oh, yeah, he's, he's in his 80s, man. It's incredibly rushing. He's, sing- he's singing is singing some amazing stuff. Yeah. Which is, I think, rare to see someone in their 80s singing like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the passion. It was so cool to see it. So when did you kind of start performing then, since you had that strong background? So I guess I picked up the guitar at 13, and by yeah. 15, I guess I was sitting in my father's band, and by 16, I think I had joined it. You know, I think I was in his band doing gigs and getting paid. So, you know, within three years, I think. I mean, I don't think I was very good, but I had an opportunity to get on stage and get used to doing that. Yeah, yeah get your chops, kind of see yeah. where it all goes. And so, so how do you explain that to your friends in high school? Like, hey, sorry, I can't hang out this weekend. I've got a gig. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Even, I don't really remember. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I didn't really go out too much on week. I would, if I wasn't gigging yeah. with my with my old man's band, I was. He would every Friday or Saturday. He would take me. I had like my favorite blues bands all around, uh-huh. and he would. We would know the venues that would allow me to come in. So sure. I was on weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, going out to see music, and then through the week, even I would be. He would be taking me to jam sessions where I could, you know stay up too late as a kid and play music yeah. nothing better than that and, no, not, and not get yelled at for staying up right, too late playing great. music yeah. I don't you know, know. mom was happy all the time right exactly you know plug in and it's like I think she could hear it from like six rooms away oh yeah like make sure you put your headphones on I can hear that amp from here oh yeah fine <laughs> um, do, you, do you still have your first guitar I do a black Fender Strat yeah. nice nice yeah my, I have a black Fender Telecaster yeah right and then, you know it's kind of the only guitar I've ever needed um, so you finish playing with your dad's band yep and then where do you end up musically so i went to berkeley college of music just uh-huh. very briefly 
for like a year and I dropped out. And after that, I had, it was a blues band at the time. Um, I did that for a couple years and then I had an opportunity, I guess it was two years, two or three years. And then I had an opportunity to move to Los Angeles and play with this other singer. Her name's Janiva Magnus. She's a blues R&B singer. Mm -hmm. And so I moved out there, played with her for a bit and then moved around a couple different artists where we were touring and through that, I met a guy named June Core, who's a drummer, and he's the drummer for Charlie Musselwhite. Mm -hmm. So when that guitar slot opened, he recommended me, and so that was like ten years ago now. So I've been playing with Charlie for ten years. Nice, but um, yeah. So, and so th this is kind of your first album with this group of musicians. Yes and no. I, I have two records out before this that are also instrumental. Okay, just under my name, Matthew sure. Stubbs. Uh, but they were one uh, two thousand. Eight and 2010, I think, right. were those two. And uh, those were like, I wrote those as, I also love like 60s Memphis soul music, high records, yeah. Booker T, you know, all that stuff. Willie Mitchell. So those records were like that. It was guitar, bass, drums with horns. Mm -hmm. And very short, two, three minute songs, in and out, some soloing, but it was very, it was, that was what I was going for at the time. So that, that the last one of those came out 2010. And then I was just touring with Charlie, and, and I, at the time I had got married and uh, was really busy with other life things. So I was just playing music live, you know, for a living, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really in the mindset to write or whatever. And then uh, when I started writing again, which was probably about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I started writing just, I was listening to all kinds of music that I hadn't listened to before, and not as much blues. Still listen to blues every day, but not the blinders are off at this point. I'm listening mm -hmm. to like a lot of Afrobeat, a lot of psych rock, different things like that. So I started writing this music and I didn't want horns on this record. It just, uh, to play live in the tour and stuff like that, it's difficult and expensive to have yeah. two or three horns. So I went in a different direction and, and it was um, bass, drums, guitar, with a lot of percussion on the record and an organ. Yeah. And live, we don't really have percussion too often. It's just basically a four piece now to keep it you know, slim. Yeah. So I wrote this music just in it, and it, I just didn't really have the blinders on being like, this is going to be a Memphis Soul record. This is going to be a blues record. I wanted to have a lot of percussion and different influences and just write songs. And so I wanted to put a different name on it. So it just wasn't, it was clear it was a new thing. Yeah, something, something so, different. Yeah, so now it's Matthew Stubbs and the Antiguas. But the, ba the drummer was, has been on all three records, okay. Chris Ravelli, and the bass player, Mark Hickox, who's been with me for a while, was on half of that record in 2010. So they have played with me for a lot, the drummer sure. especially for a long time. Uh, organ player is new and uh, the material's you know much much different than those other two records. Yeah, yeah, I really like where the organ kind of just yeah. feel it's it gives it such a cool yeah. feel and energy to it. You know, there are moments where it almost feels like there's a bit of a Middle Eastern tone yeah. and influence. Middle um, Eastern, you know, African, it just I mean, it's none of those things traditionally. If you were to listen to one of those records, it's obviously not that. But it's you know, there's there's pieces of it or, or the vibe of something I'm trying to bring into what I yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was one track. I think uh, I don't remember what it almost felt like a bit of uh, late '60s go-go music. Okay, and, cool. Uh, I was really really digging that. Um, to call out one track, the last yep. track uh, yep. called Tarantino. Yeah, um, is that an homage to Quentin? Yeah, it, uh, it is. So that song that song was. I probably wrote that song. That might have been the first one I wrote. F I won't say for the record. I just wrote it. It was the, the oldest song on the record that mm -hmm. I had ri written, and I had not played it live. And then I wrote the rest of the record, and 
most of the it's, I like to think of it's more it's moody and on the darker side, yeah. and that's a very happy song. So at the time I was like, I don't know if, how am I going to fit this on the record, and uh, and I didn't have a name for it or I had a different working title at the time. And what I came up with, I mean, my girlfriend were talking. I you know I love Quentin Tarantino. I love the way he films. I love how he his, all his films are scored, mm-hmm. and so the concept was put the happy song at the end of kind of a darker record and it's almost like when you watch his movies and there's a very violent scene but then there's happy music going on you know nice. what I mean so yeah, yeah. so I, that's what I named it Tarantino I think it works perfectly yeah cool um, so you wrote these songs beforehand you wrote them all by yourself um, yeah. what, what's your writing process like so for this record it was a little different um, 90% of it I write at home playing every instrument uh, myself, not, maybe not very well, but getting the point across with the parts, and then I send them to the band, and then we rehearse the parts. You know, smooth them out. If they have suggestions, I'm open to suggestions, and then we get we come up with a working arrangement, and then we start playing it. And I, you know, I, lo- I know a lot of artists don't play it live until the record's done, but a lot of these songs, for this record anyway, I played it a lot live before we even recorded, so we could go in and just bang them out. Mm-hmm. Bastille Day, which is the second song on the record. Uh, my co-producer actually came to me with that song. He had wrote a lot of that, but it had no melody, and it was a slightly different arrangement. So I took that tune and I just wrote a melody to it, and then we together arranged it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think there was one other tune, Unwinder. The organ player came up uh, with part of the melody, or actually the organ melody. I had wrote the song, I had arranged it, and I'm like, it needs a melody. You want to take a crack at it? And he came up with it really quick, and I dug it, so we kept it. Nice. But everything else I wrote. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's a cool blend. You know, there were when I first listened to it because to be honest, I don't actually read the long press release sure. that people because I I don't want I want to put my own thoughts yeah, right. into it. You know, there, there there seems to also be a pretty heavy influence from jazz in there. You know, just in, sure. in how some of the soloing goes in that. When you're writing, mm-hmm. do you have a moment where you're like, that's it, like that that is that is the exact sound, that is the exact melody oh, I'm looking for. On the solo or the arrangement of the song? What do you mean? Both. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, soloing, no. Like when I'm demoing it, no. Yeah. I don't. To be honest, when I demo a song, I don't usually work up a solo. I mean, I'll just play something. I'll right. play a solo, and I don't. That's the last thing I care about on a demo because um, it's going to develop once it. Be, you know, the tempos are going to change a little bit, and the mood's going to change. As far as a melody and arrangement goes, yeah. Like I'll I'll go over it and over it. Like I'll write a tune. I'll listen to it a bunch. I'll give it a day. And, you know, I'm a runner, so I'll go run. Mm-hmm. And I'll run six, seven miles and just listen to it on repeat and think of ideas. And then I'll go back and I'll tweak it. Uh, but I usually, sitting down, I like to get through the entire thing. Like, I don't just write, I mean, I have, and it doesn't work out well for me. Like an A section. I'll be like, oh, I'll do the B section later. Sure. I never go back. To, and sure. when I sit down with the B, for some reason it creates a block. So I try to get the meat of it done in one sitting. And then I'll go back and kind of edit. Or maybe add an intro or something, but verse, chorus, bridge are usually written, and I'll yes, like there, got it. You know, right, that's, that's it. We're yeah. done. We, yeah. we can ship. Move that on. One. Move on. Yeah, we can ship that. And so then, do you kind of have a feeling of like this is how the album is going to fit together, or does that all come after everything's all done and you're listening to them? No, I I try to think of when I make a record, uh, a concept of a vibe of the whole the whole thing, and and I'll think about if I have if I'm shooting to have. 10 or 12 tunes and I got eight I'll sit down with like all right I want to write a slow song or Mm -hmm. I want to write you know a more a boogaloo a 60s boogaloo feel 
and I'll go with that. Sometimes, a lot of times, I'll start with an idea like, oh, I want to make this a boogaloo or a bassa, and it comes out completely different. But it's, you know, the tempo or whatever might be what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of taking a step back from the record specifically, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the musical community that you live within, yep. to me is one of the more unique because it has survived longer than pretty much any other music community there's been. Sure. Um, have you seen changes since you, you were able to start in kind of that scene so young? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, I think, I think live music is suffering. Yeah. You know, everywhere. I mean, when I started, I'm not so much in the local blues scene anymore. Like, I do some gigs, but more as a sideman. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I book something under my name now, it's it's basically the Antigua, so it's more of a rock band, I guess. But uh, in the, the blues side of things, yeah, it's dwindled. Like, you can... Boston's one of the few places I think you can play four or five nights a week in New England, not necessarily downtown yeah. Boston. Uh, outside that, uh, like... In the songwriting or rock world, I think there's 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 venues to play, uh, and more than most cities. I think you know outside obviously New York has a million venues, but um, I feel like it's hard to get people out. You know what I mean? Even with great bands, like I'll go see bands in Boston. I think are great, and you walk in, and I'm looking forward to seeing them, and then you know there's 15 people, right? And it's kind of depressing. And, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. Why why it's so light. Uh, we're lucky we have a night on Mondays that we have like a residency in Cambridge mm-hmm. with this band and that night is pretty crowded on a regular basis it took a lot of work to get it there but um, yeah I don't know I, so yes I have noticed a difference it used to be much more crowded at everybody's shows sure yeah 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 I, I don't get it why going to a live concert and going to see live music suddenly I don't know if it's not as cool as it used to be because I'm going to shows and I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I, th- I think it's a drink. I think, A, it's a drinking thing. I think, you know, the whole drinking and driving thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're coming in or out of the city, eh, you know, the internet, Netflix, I think all that stuff hurts it. I don't know. Yeah, people just sitting in front of YouTube and watching the show because that's someone taped on their, you know, cell phone. Right. There seems like, there, yeah, there's just a lot more. A lot more things you can do on your couch than yeah. maybe when I was a kid. Get out and see live music. I just, it, it's baffled me for a very long time. Yeah. Um, so what other what other music are you listening to these days? What other bands are you digging? I'm listening to a ton of stuff. Like most recently, records I like that that I've been listening to. Jim James's last re- he just came out with a new one with a bunch of covers, but yeah. the last one is it uh, Eternally Even? Yeah, or something like that. I love that record. So that that record, uh, I'm really into the. Arcs, which I don't even think they're gathering with Dan Auerbach's mm-hmm. side project with uh, like Leon Michaels and these other guys, Richard Swift. They put out a record, a couple singles, an EP. I love all that stuff. I'm digging on Father John Misty, but the first two records, which I'm late to the I'm late to that party because that's I, I wasn't listening to them when they came out. Sure. But recently that's been in there. And then Beck, I mean I just I constantly listen to Beck, Tom Waits, and then all old blues too. But for for modern people I think that stuff. I also like um, L. Michael's Affair a lot. So I've been listening to a lot of that yeah, lately. The Wu-Tang variations that he did. Yeah, he uh, just came out with that new one. It's great. Yeah, um, so cool. And Krongbin, I always say their name wrong. Are you hip to them? Yeah. I'm, I'm liking them. I just saw them live, actually, with Chicano Batman. And, nice. Uh, and they, I thought they That's were great, cool man. Bill. It was them and then the Shacks. I was just talking to uh, Jeff about it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they're all cool, man. I, I, what I've been listening to mostly is... For when I listen to records now, obviously song and melody is the most important thing, but I'm really into the production uh-huh. and how, how a record finishes and I'm curious of how it sounded before it got mixed. 
like raw sounds compared to the finished product. Uh-huh. And like most of those people I mentioned, I think there's a lot of production. It doesn't have to be necessarily hi-fi production. There's a lot of production involved and I'm always listening to Sonics, like if it's the Flaming Lips or something like little sounds and big sounds and how they get lots of low end like hip hop records. Mm-hmm. So I'm always searching for that, I guess. And then really just moody stuff. I like, I like, I'm not, I don't listen to too many artists that are using, you know, major key stuff these days. It's always my, everything I like is always in a minor key almost like my record sure. for that one song. Yeah. <laughs> so did you spend a lot of time then mixing and kind of moving the sounds around on your record? Yeah. Uh, so I, I recorded five of these tunes and started mixing it with an engineer and we were going back and forth trying to get what I, what I wanted it to sound like in my head. And I ended up throwing out those mixes, uh, which was an expensive choice. Yeah. And I started over with my co-producer, Dave Brophy, and another engineer out of Boston named Pat Desenzo. And between the three of us, it happened pretty quickly. And, we, and then we mixed the five I did, and then I went in and I recorded another five, and we mixed those. And now we seem to have a, a flow going where the next record's already done, and I'm halfway done mixing that. And this record just came out. So right, yeah. now that I feel like I got my little team, and we all know what I'm at least striving for. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I spent a lot of time with those guys. So, you, so your next record is already... It's recorded. Yeah. Um, and I guess we got 10 tunes. Four of them are almost done being mixed. So I uh-huh. got six more to mix. Yeah. Nice. But yeah. You going to drop that this year? Are you going to wait, you I know, think, sit on this one uh, for a while? That, I mean, this one just came out yeah. like three weeks ago. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I want to drop it sooner than later. And it ends up being like, I'm doing these as an independent artist. So I'm footing the entire bill. Yeah. So when you do that, it, it's more about... It's not. I don't have a shortage of songs. I have almost enough for a third yeah. written, but um, it's more about timing it and, and being able to afford it. I don't want to go more than a year, though. Like I would like to see this come out in February or March, the mm-hmm. latest of next year. Yeah. So as an independent artist, how do you find navigating technology as it's constantly changing? I, I, yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, I try, I try my best. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. You know, I, I end up hiring people when I can afford it. Sure. Uh, trying different things and seeing how it works but I, yeah I don't know it's always I, I even like something as simple as Facebook I feel like it changes every day when, yeah. you, when you're doing a, a, a if you're buying an ad on Facebook I don't even half the time I don't even know what's happening right you're just like I think this is going to go to the people that I want to see it but we'll yeah find but out. like then yeah you do it and then it's it doesn't and then another one will blow up and I don't know why right but, yeah so then it's the double-edged sword then with the internet and social media and that I have to think it makes it easier to kind of get your new stuff out there I think it's good I mean I, I think for me on this particular record I think it's helped you know mm-hmm. what I mean like yeah, I'm able to you know create content and get it out there um, but with things like streaming and stuff it doesn't necessarily come back with a, with a paycheck right for listening people listening to it I think uh in my mind, I'm trying to figure out a way so people want to see it live and come to a show, like what we were just talking about. It's hard to get, it's hard to get, you know, 400 people out in every city if you're going to go on a tour, right? And if you're just starting out, so that's kind of in my mind. I'm after that. I'm after trying to get in front of people live, sell a ticket, and if they like what they hear, they can buy a vinyl. My thanks again to Matthew Stubbs for stopping by. Be sure to check out that record. And if they're coming to your town, do your ears a favor and go check them out.
Now, before we get out of here, I do, of course, have your ear fuel listening assignment. For everybody new to the podcast, each episode, I give an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that in modern times, which we live in, everybody is kind of distracted pretty much all of the time. You know, you're at the gym, you're driving, you are dealing with your screaming children, whatever it may be. And this is about taking some time each week, a little bit of time, to listen to music consciously for the sake of music alone. This week, because we talked about it and because it's a really damn good record, your listening assignment is Junior Wells' impeccable, unparalleled 1965 album, Hoodoo Man Blues. Now, I know a lot of people like to think that that whole gangsta, tough guy persona in music came about in, I don't know, the mid to late 70s as hip-hop emerged, but Junior Wells was walking that walk all the way back in the 60s, and it is all over this album. It's really the spirit of this album. Before we even get to the music, though, we need to talk about the lineup, because along with Junior Wells and his band, is a guitarist who, on the first few pressings of this record, was credited as Friendly Chap. They had to use this name because this was the 60s, and there were a lot of contractual disputes, and people could only record for certain labels, and they were worried that this person, they referred to as Friendly Chap, might not actually be able to play on the session, but he did. So think about it. What is another term for a friendly chap? I don't know. Maybe your buddy? Yeah. All across Hoodoo Man Blues, Buddy Guy is in top form, and it's one of the main reasons this album is such a legend. Hoodoo Man Blues is all about mood. It's loose and cool. You can feel the attitude on every single track. There are these awesome grooves. I mean, it's just one of those you put on and you're just going to say to yourself, yeah, that's what I need. Snatch it back and hold. Baby, one more time. You're also going to recognize a lot of the song titles and a lot of the songs on here. And honestly, these are pretty much the definitive version of almost every one of these songs as far as I'm concerned. Nobody touches this record. Junior Wells himself absolutely destroys on harmonica and vocals, and he's really defining a style on this record. You're going to hear it, and you're going to be able to figure out, oh, here's all the people that basically copied what he was doing. This is really an originator doing his thing. He's got this gruff, somewhat cocky delivery that makes him instantly recognizable, but it's not that bad kind of arrogance like Billy Corgan or a lot of people have done over time. It just, it works. You want to hear more and you kind of champion him as soon as you hear him start performing. And don't get caught up in the title here. Hoodoo Man Blues goes well beyond blues. The grooves are a bit jazzy, a bit rumba. It's got this swing. It's just, it's a very cool record. And as far as I'm concerned, it is a record that everybody should have in their collection. It's one of those that never ages. It always satisfies. It's one of those just, honestly, if you don't know it, go play it right now. Thank me later. My thanks again to Matthew Stubbs for stopping by. Make sure you go check him out on tour and check out the album. The podcast is always available at GetEarFuel.com, iTunes, Google Play stores, and all places like that under EarFuel. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can hit me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. That's it for this episode of EarFuel. Share and enjoy.